Good morning. Welcome to worship here. It is Sunday, January the 31st. It's a very snowy morning. I am glad to see those of you who have uh, ventured out into the roads that you all have made it safely. And to those of you who are at home, hope you're all doing well. For those of you who are at home, I will add this at the beginning so you have a chance to go grab if you like, but today is our communion day. So if you wanted to go grab yourself some bread or juice, or hey, if you got coffee on hand, that's fine too. For those of you who are here, sorry, no coffee for you. <laughs> Dwayne's fine, no coffee. A <laughs> uh, couple of reminders out of the announcements in the bulletin. The commission and executive committee meetings are not this coming Tuesday, but the following Tuesday, February the 10th at 7 p.m. here in the church. The newsletter just went out as of yesterday. Also yesterday, we gathered here together with the Jenkins family and celebrated the life of Eileen Jenkins. And it was, it was a very lovely time. It was a time of a lot of celebration, a few tears, and a lot of laughs. Are there any other announcements? Oh, one other announcement. I have Martin Bold right next to me. We will be starting Sunday school next week here at the church, which is February the 7th. It'll be downstairs, I believe it's the plan still, in the uh, fellowship hall. Mike Connor will be leading that. Following worship, we will also be uh, having our hymn time, some hymn sing songs. You are free to stay and join in that as you feel led. Are there any other announcements you wish to share? We have extra communion packets um, here in the church if you wish to take uh, them home to anyone who was unable to make it today, please feel free to grab a couple. I will remind those of you who are here with the communion packets that we do have our homemade Church of the Brethren's bread um, so you don't need to eat the wafer, but be careful when you open up that little cup. They sometimes like to explode. Don't open it ahead of time either, since there's not a great place to set them. As we move into our worship, are there any prayers of joys or concerns that you wish to share with the community? Terry. I'm, I'm so sorry to hear Terry. Um, Terry's brother passed away last night. If you'll join me in preparing your hearts for worship.
you'll pray with me. Lord, as we look out today and see the world transformed below a sheet of white snow, we're reminded of your power and how you can completely change this world in just a mattering matter of moments. We ask to walk with us in these changes, whatever they happen to be, that you give us strength to carry, to celebrate in times of joy, to mourn in times of sorrow. Lord, we come here lifting up especially Terry, her family, for her brother Ron. We lift up Ron's family, knowing that they are in a time where they're not sure what tomorrow will bring, but just knowing that it's different than yesterday. Hold them close. Let them know that they are loved, loved by us, loved by you, and still loved by Ron. Hold us close, God, in these times. Amen. Precious Lord, take my hand, lead me on, let me stand. I am tired, I am weak, I am worn. Through the storm, through the night, lead me on to the light. Take my hand, precious Lord, lead me home. When my way grows drear, precious Lord, linger near. When my light is almost gone. Hear my cry, hear my call, hold my hand lest I fall. Take my hand, precious Lord, lead me home. When the darkness appears, and the night draws near, and the day is past and gone. At the river I stand, guide my feet, hold my hand, take my hand, precious Lord, lead me home. Precious Lord, take my hand, lead me on, let me stand. I am tired, I am weak, I am worn. Through the storm, through the night, lead me on to the light. Take my hand, precious Lord, 
need me home. Take my hand, precious Lord, and lead me we continue in our reading of Mike and Mark. <laughs> As we continue in our reading of Mark, we're in chapter 5, verses 1 through 20. They came to the other side of the sea, to the country of the Gerasenes. They had, and when they stepped out of the boat, immediately a man came out of the tombs with an unclean spirit and met him. He lived among the tombs, and no one could restrain him anymore, even with a chain. He had often been restrained with shackles in chains, but the chains he wrenched apart, and the shackles, shackles he broke into pieces. And he had strength. No one had strength to subdue him. Night and day among the tombs on the mountain, he was always howling and bruising himself with stones. When he saw Jesus from a distance, he ran down and bowed before him. And he shouted at the top of his voice, What have you to do with me? Sorry, Jesus, Son of God, Most High, I adjure you by God, do not torment me. For he said to him, Come out of this man, you unclean spirit. Then Jesus asked him, What is your name? He replied, My name is Legion, for we are many. He begged him in earnest not to send them out of the country. Now there on the hillside was a great herd of swine feeding, and the unclean spirits begged him, send us into the swine, let us enter them. So he gave them permission, and the unclean spirits came out and entered the swine, and the herd, uh, numbering about 2,000, rushed down into the sea, down the steep bank, and were drowned. The swine herds ran off and told it in the city and in the country. Then the people came to see what had happened. They came to Jesus and saw the demoniac sitting there, clothed and in his right mind, the very, the very man who had had the legion, and they were afraid. Those who had seen what had happened to the demoniac and to the swine reported it. And they began to beg Jesus to leave their neighborhood. He was getting into the boat, and the man who was possessed by demons begged him that he might go with him. But Jesus refused and said, go to your friends, go home, and tell them how much the Lord has done for you and what mercy he has shown you. And when he went away and began to proclaim in the Decapolis how much Jesus had done for him and everyone was amazed. Blessed is the word of God. So I went to a really small school, like 
60-some kids in my class, and that was normal. There was, between the elementary and the high school, a total of 900 kids, give or take at any time. Actually, between the high school and the elementary was the teacher parking lot. It's a side point. Anyway. So we were used to small classes. You know, a group of 60-some students divided among, say, four elementary teachers is, you know, like 15 students apiece, give or take. Uh, and by the time we reached high school, you know, some of us were in band and choir, and so we had those in the middle of the day. There were the students who uh, did sports and so took extra strengthening classes. There were those who did vocationals classes, and so they were gone for half the day, too. And so our classes got really small sometimes. I really liked that. I loved my biology or my uh, physics and um, chemistry class because there was 10 of us for two years, the same group. Loved that. But my smallest class was AP English Composition. Now, if you've ever taken an AP or heard of an AP course, it's basically the idea is that when you end the course, you're allowed to take a test, and if you score uh, four or five out of five, most colleges will accept it as a college credit. And the rule for our school was there had to be at least three students in the course. Thankfully, there were three students in the course. That was my smallest class. It was Valerie, Chris, and myself. Now, Chris decided, after realizing what the course entailed, to quit. After a discussion with the principal and people, they decided, well, we've already invested this time for you all. You can just stay in the course. So it was two of us. And I loved that class. I've always been a bibliophile. I love books. I love to read. And in this course, we got to really read the books, the classics. You know, I know what we had to do in English class. I know trying to get through a lot of stories meant that you couldn't always read the whole story. So, you know, we read Moby Dick, for instance, the copy that fit into the English reading book. So, you know, the book that was this long originally had to be shrunk down to that to fit in. You lose a lot. But in this course, this AP Comp, we were expected to read the whole of every novel. And that was exciting. We read novels, short stories, essays, speeches, even the Bible all in the name of understanding how words are put together, how ideas are put to page. But we started with this idea that we needed to understand words, writing, composition, structure, which I know I talked about not that long ago, and it comes up again because it just happens to. So we, we spent the first week or two working through, okay, how do you identify simile? How do you identify metaphor, foreshadowing, different kinds of wordplay? And I remember sitting there with my notebook and reading through our first short novel and picking out, okay, starting on page 82 with the words for the blah, 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 through this section, I think this is a metaphor, and then I have to explain what the metaphor I think it was talking about. Our first book that we did it was, was with Ernest Hemingway's The Old Man and the Sea. 
which is an awesome book. It's a good read. I fell in love with it. And it was a perfect one because Ernest Hemingway's The Old Man in the Sea, is, yeah, sure, it's a ballad story about, you know, Santiago and the Marlin, but it's all metaphor. It's all telling you other stories that exist below the words in the story. And so that was a great one. And being such a tiny class meant that, well, Valerie and I and Mrs. Damiano could just really sit there and discuss it to really dig into each one. And what I noticed is that, you know, Valerie and I had known each other for a very long time. You know, we'd gone to elementary on the other side of the height, on the other side of the parking lot together. And we are now seniors in high school. There was a lot of differences in how we read the book. We just understood the story differently. It's what I love about books. It's what I love about writing, how the words change. Once the author finishes and puts down their pen and sends the words out into the world, it's no longer theirs. It changes with every single person who reads it. They have their own understanding, their own worldview affects it. I mean, this happens with all kinds of art. I mean, whether it's, you know, cinema or sculpture, painting or pantomiming, singing or speaking, it's all about how it's received by the audience. But I think writing's special in that it really pretty much only relies on the audience's ability to interpret what they're reading. You don't get to watch me wave my arms. Maybe that's good. <laughs> this is probably no more true. I mean, this, this is true with all written material. You know, whether you're reading A Modest Proposal or I was going to say those vampire movies and books that came out a couple years ago with the shiny vampires, but I can't even think of the name. Twilight. You know, it, that's true with all of them. But I think it's most true with the Bible. I think the Bible's unique in that way. I think when God chose out the authors and the redactors, the redactors are the, the editors who tied together the disparate parts when, you know, like Isaiah wrote his letters of, his writings over a long period, and then someone tied them together into a single book. That's a redactor. When God called them out, God called out ones who were able to write in a way that would speak down through the ages. I mean, after all, when Jesus was born, they had already been arguing for centuries over the meaning of the Hebrew text. And it's no more, you know, it's just as apparent today that we have all these different denominations who have been working with this same text for 2,000 years, and we still disagree about the meanings, about what part is more important than another part, about how to apply it to our lives. The Bible has in its very DNA the ability to talk to everybody an ability to meet those people exactly where they're at. All you have to do is be able to understand the words on a simple basis, like just to be able to read. That's all you need. 
and the Bible will speak to you and speak to where you're from. So, of all the stories, especially in the Gospels, there's one that sticks out to me as especially poignant in this, and that's today's reading. Today's reading is extraordinarily rich. I love it. I can't say it was always my favorite story until I hit seminary and we were forced to sit down and really read it and analyze it and talk about it. But, you know, it's, it's found in all three Gospels. You know, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. Not John. John doesn't tell the story. But Matthew, Mark, and Luke all do, and they're called the synoptics. They all are written similarly. You know, the, the thought is that actually when Matthew and Luke were sitting down to write their Gospels, they had a copy of Mark next to them. Because from time to time, they copy word from word what Mark says. So I'm sorry, teachers. They, they did a little bit of plagiarism. But that's okay. That was allowed back then. Uh, but when Matthew and Mark tell this story, they cut a lot of it. I'm sorry, Matthew and Luke. When they tell this story, they cut a lot of it out. Mark spends nearly 20 verses talking and building up the world. So you fully understand what Jesus is encountering on the side of the, of the sea. Matthew and Luke don't worry about it. They just, they just tell you the bare bones of the story in 10 verses. But Mark's richness of detail opens up the story, opens up the possible meanings. So as a quick recap, you've already heard me read the full, but I'm going to go recap over it. I just want you to spend a moment and think about what you hear coming through as the lesson for this story. Mark tells us, there is a man who is possessed with an unclean spirit. And because of that, he is unusually strong, uncontrollable. He is out, naked, screaming, self-harming, and living in a place of the dead. Jesus calls out to him. The spirit automatically recognizes him. Jesus asks for its name, and it says, my name is Legion. Legion does not wish to be sent away. It wants to stay in the country and says, send me into those pigs. Jesus obliges. The spirits go into the pigs. The pigs run down and drown themselves. This is so frightening that the pig herders run away Go get the people who own the pigs who live in the area to come back. They are amazed and terrified by this man who has been healed. They are amazed and terrified by the man who has done the healing. And they ask him to go away. Jesus acquiesces. And as Jesus leaves, the man who he has healed asks to go with him. Jesus says, no, stay. Go home. Tell people what God has done for you. Think about it for just a minute. Just let it sit. Now, if I was in a Bible study setting, this would be the awesome time where I ask you to write it down. But this is a sermon. I'm not going to ask you to do that right now. <laughs> but you may have had multiple insights, so I'm going to kind of walk through them with you a little. 
Now, a really classical reading of this text, the one that, you know, when I pull out those books of what people said in the past, these are the people who all lived with, you know, only three digits in the year. A lot of them talk about how this story points out the fear and ignorance of humanity in the face of divinity. Jesus comes out of nowhere on their shore, an unknown power. Evil instantly recognizes what and who Jesus is and it begs for leniency. Jesus, in treating these unclean spirits, puts them in unclean animals. And those unclean animals run into the sea, which is the very basic symbol of chaos and evil in the Jewish culture. The people from the town confront this and are amazed by this power, but they fail to see it at the same time. They fail to recognize divinity in front of them, despite what has happened. Evil, the unclean recognizes it, but the humanity that it came to save, that power is invisible to. They also fail to see the miracle that brings this man back into society, fearing it as well. That's a classical reading. Then there's the broad reading. So you go back one story, and you go down to the end of the chapter in a bit, and you see that this is actually a whole series of miracles. Mark will do this. He'll have miracle after miracle after miracle after miracle. That's how he writes. So the story immediately before happens on the sea, and that's Jesus calming the storm. And then he comes and he cleanses this man, and then he goes out again, and that's when he heals the hemorrhagic woman who touch, reaches out and grabs his robe and is healed. Then he goes to Jairus, um, who's a synagogue official and whose daughter has just died, and he raises Jairus's daughter from the dead. So we have a whole series of miracles, Jesus in the sea, Jesus in the, in the demons, the unclean spirits, Jesus in a healing, Jesus in a raising from the dead. Jesus has a power over nature, over spirits, over animals, over the human body, and over death. but Jesus doesn't have control, or at least doesn't exert control over one thing, and that's the human will. Because the following story after this, after all of these together, is Jesus back in Nazareth, where he is rejected once again, and this time by his own hometown. In this story, it's again kind of pointing out that the humanity kind of misses when divinity is right in front of it, rejects it, is unseeing of it, but also how God interacts with us. It's for us to come to the belief, not for God to force the belief upon us. There's the allegorical. You know, everything's a story, if then a story within a story. And in this one, we are all the demoniacs. We are all living lives with unclean spirits within us that cause us to separate ourselves, that cause us to sin, to self-harm, that cause us to live in the land of the dead, 
And only Jesus can come in and cleanse us of these unclean spirits and sending them back into the chaos, into the void, and reintroducing us back into the society, back into the community. There's an allegorical reading. But my two favorite ways of reading this is about community. The community that's within and the community that's without. So I'll start with the within. This is not the first time that Jesus clean, heals someone of an unclean spirit in Mark. This is time number two. The first time is actually Jesus' very first miracle in Mark, in chapter one. Jesus is preaching and teaching in a synagogue, and one of the men who's sitting there with the congregation listening to him is affected by an unclean spirit and stands up and calls out Jesus. And Jesus heals him. Now, in this story, this man's situation is a lot different. He, too, is inflicted with an unclean spirit. But unlike the demoniac in Gerasene, this demoniac is allowed to stay in the synagogue. He's allowed to remain a part of the community. They accept him for his problems. And because of that, when he is healed, the reaction of, and it would have been all men in the synagogue, the reaction of his brothers there in the synagogue is joy. It's awe. And it's a deepening faith. They are drawn closer to God. The garrison demoniac, on the other hand, has been sent away. He's been sent to live among the tombs in a place that no one goes if they can help it. He's been rejected by his society. And when he is healed, it doesn't bring the people closer to God. It puts them farther away. They lack compassion for this brother. And because they lack this compassion, because they lack this most basic thing God asks of us to care for our brothers and our sisters, they are unable to connect with the divinity standing there in front of them and doing that. I think this, this reading is further supported by the, the very fact of what happens next. Whenever Jesus does a miracle in Mark or has some great profound teaching, he always ends the story by saying, don't tell anyone. Which, of course, someone broke the rules because obviously the Mark heard enough of these stories, he was able to write them down. So someone blabbed. But in this case, Jesus does his normal thing. He doesn't allow the person who he healed to stay with him. He sends him back into his community. But he also tells them this time, tell the people what God has done for you. Spread the good news. Spread the gospel. He didn't have to do that with the person in the synagogue. It was done. They were around him. They were ready. For the garrison demoniac, though, he had work ahead of him. He was forced to still go out and do more. They weren't ready to hear the gospel at the beginning, and so it was going to take more work to get the gospel out to them. 
the other version is a warning about the community that's without, the community on the outside. Now, this is one I never encountered before. And, you know, the, the thing in theology is that with very few exceptions, no person out there who has written a book on theology, about faith, about spiritual practices, is telling you anything new. <laughs> it's all reworked material that's been around for the last 2,000 years. That's just kind of how it is. But once in a while, there's something new that comes through. And this particular reading came out of Central America by a priest who was living in a time where he was serving the local natives and they were being oppressed by the Spanish and later by, well, the various oppressing, oppressive regimes that have existed down in Latin America. You got to kind of step back out of the Bible for this one because the clues are all in there. But if you don't know anything about the political situation of Judea, you won't get it because that's why I didn't get it. So Jesus is living and working and in this case, sailing on the Sea of Galilee. Galilee is surrounded by three provinces, three Roman provinces. Two of them are under the rule of Herod's. Uh, no longer Herod the Great, but his sons and cousins and nephews and whatnot. One of them being Galilee, which covers the entire eastern half of Galilee, north to south. Then to the north, I'm sorry, the entire western half. The entire northeast section is a province called Galenditus, something like that. Doesn't matter. That's also under Herod control. And then to the southeast is this area called Decapolis which we get that hint right at the end. It mentions that this is the Decapolis. Now, for those of you who remember your Greek and Latin roots, you might remember that opolis is a word that basically means city. And deca means 10. This land is literally called 10 cities. These 10 cities, most of them have actually a fairly short history. You know, Alexander the Great came in, conquered everything. Then he died, and he had generals who split up the land. One of those generals started nine cities in this area. And then the tenth city is, is Damascus, which is one of the oldest cities on Earth. These cities together operated as city-states. They answered to the Roman government. They were under Roman control but they were under direct Roman control. They didn't have someone like Herod in charge of them. This was the frontier land, and the Romans had a way to deal with frontier land because, after all, it's the most dangerous area. That's where the barbarians come in to conquer you. It's also where there's e most easily the most unrest because these are probably the last group of people you've conquered. So whenever they would conquer a new land, they would settle a bunch of retired Roman soldiers there. And that makes a lot of sense. I mean, if you want to put in people to control an unruly populace, put in the people who are most likely to listen to your commands and know how to enforce it. So the Decapolis becomes this area full of Romans, Gensuntite, um, full of Romans. Now, 
it's also still a Jewish area. There's lots of Jews who live around here. And some of them decide to make some money. And they make their money with pigs. You're not supposed to do that if you're Jewish. You know, I, I'm going to kind of come hard down on pigs today because they're very symbolic in this story. I have nothing against pigs. I think for the most part, they're pretty cute little things. But anyway, I don't know. Big pigs scare me. But for the most part, Jews weren't allowed to interact with pigs. It was something that stained your soul. It was something that would keep you from God. It's, it's not quite on the same level as, say, murder or adultery, but it's not that far below it. It's the reason why the story of the prodigal son is so shocking that he went to work with pigs. It wasn't like he just went to go do a dirty job that has to be done. He went to do a dirty job that nobody should be doing if they're Jewish. It would make him an absolute outsider. These Jews were Roman collaborators. They were people who were willing to make a buck by just simply working with the, oppress the oppressors, the ones who over and over and over again, desecrated Jewish traditions, killed Jews, killed worshipers of God. It would eventually destroy the temple itself. But these Jews don't see themselves that way. They're still trying to hold on to some of the old law. They're still, it looks like they think that they're good practicing followers of God. After all, what they actually do to the, the demoniac isn't that far off of what the law says they should do. It's a little extra harsh. They went too far. But still, they don't see that as a problem. They don't see what they're doing as sellers and dealers in pigs and working with the collaborators as a problem. They don't see it as sinful. Jesus, especially in Mark, doesn't pull any punches. At least when it comes to people in positions of authority, power, or wealth, Jesus is pretty darn critical of them. And these people who think that they're perfectly good Jews, Jesus is like, no, not only that, but you're doing, not only that, but I'm going to even destroy the way that you have been interacting with these people. I mean, after all, what's the name that the demon calls itself? It doesn't call itself a phalanx, that'd be Greek. It doesn't call itself the militia, that would have been Jewish, or you know, they would have called themselves um, zealots or bandits, you know. Calls itself legion. The name of the Roman military. What's the thing that's affecting this poor man? Okay, now we're kind of going back into the allegory a bit. 
What's the thing that's affecting him, that's holding him down, that's causing him pain, causing him to hurt himself to live among the dead? It's the oppressors. It's the Roman military. It's the conquerors that's bringing about all this pain. And what does Jesus do to them? Jesus sends them into the most unclean animal and dooms them to die in the sea. Kind of switching back into the allegory a bit. But it's also a warning against those who are willing to work with, those who are willing to sacrifice their relationship with God, to sacrifice what they're willing to do to make a buck, to have a little comfort. a scary thought. These are just five readings. Five perfectly possible, five perfectly logical, five readings that have brought a lot of meaning of these texts to those who encounter it. Every one of them has a great lesson for us. Because, yes, it's hard for humans to encounter the divinity of God and realize it. Because, yes, God has power over all things, but God doesn't force us into belief. God expects us to hear and work our way there. Because, yes, we all carry with us things that separate us from the community, that separate us from God, and Jesus calls us into a life that gets rid of those things to fight them, to return. Because God expects us to be compassionate, to love others even when they make us uncomfortable. And yes, God expects us that when we say we're going to do something, when we say we're going to live a certain way, when we make a promise in the baptismal pool, that we're going to hold to it, even if that means foregoing comfort, money, or security. Mark's Jesus continues to be defiant and continues to push us in uncomfortable ways. Thank you. If you'll join me in the sacred ordinance of communion. John 15, 9 through 12 reads, As the Father has loved me, so I have loved you. 
abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in love as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. I have said these things to you so that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be complete. This is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. If you'll pray with me. Lord, you give tough instructions. Loving you first, heart, soul, is heavy in itself. Then comes this word to love one another as you have loved us, and it is more than we can accomplish in just a lifetime. But help us to make a meaningful beginning in this simple greeting to one another. Amen. All who are in love and fellowship with your brothers and sisters, who do earnestly repent of your sins and who humbly put your trust in Christ and desire his help that you might lead a more godly life, draw near to God and receive these emblems of your comfort and wholeness through Jesus Christ. 1 Corinthians 11, 26 says, for I have received from the Lord what I also have handed on to you. That Lord Jesus, on the night that he was betrayed, took a loaf of bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it. This is my body that is for you. Do so in remembrance of me. In saying this, in the same way he took also the cup, after supper, and said, This cup is my new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it and in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. I ask, that as I say this next part, you respond. The bread which we break is the communion of the body of Christ. We hold in our hands a symbol of the broken humanness of Christ. Let us remember that. The bread which we break is the communion of the body of Christ. you join me in prayer as brothers and sisters, as members, as Christians, and as priests of God. Gracious God, you are always doing miracles with common things. You give us bread, plain and fancy. We break it, butter it, toast it, put something in the middle of it. We enjoy its reality. But the mystery of how it is done for us 
the seed sprout leaven, the skill of the baker. That is all hidden from us. You give us this bread, O God. We break it, share, remember, and enjoy the miracle of his love. But how the mystery of the newness happens hidden from us. As we help us to accept the mystery and rejoice in its miracle. Amen. I ask that you repeat after this. The cup which we bless is the communion of the blood of Christ. We hold in our hands the symbol of the life, the resources of Christ. Let us remember that. The cup which we bless is the communion of the blood of Christ. you'll join again in prayer with me. God, sometimes we think no one cares. And then the touch of the hand says, I do. Sometimes we feel no one understands. Then we meet a pair of eyes that says, someone does. Sometimes we feel alone. And a smile says, we aren't. Sometimes we feel lost. And you give us a cup that reminds us that we are found. God, as we drink and remember, give us the courage to accept the way you accept us in Jesus Christ. Let us say that old prayer, the one that Jesus taught his disciples together so long ago. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. I didn't really think about communion when I wrote my sermon today. 
Sometimes it just works out well that things connect. I call that the spirit working. I pray that it happens every week. Sometimes I'm not always sure, but that's my own failings. The story I hear most strongly in today's reading comes down to that we are called to live the way of Christ, no matter what. In communion, it isn't that Jesus is telling us to remember him every time we hold communion. It's every time we eat the bread. It's every time we drink from a cup, whether it's grape juice, wine, or my coffee thermos. The two go well together. So every time you lift a piece of delicious wheat carbs up to your lips this week, every time you pour yourself a coffee or a tea or an OJ, remember, it's a call back, a call back to the way of God and a reminder to live God's way, Jesus' way. Amen.